Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Please reach for your Bibles and reach for your notes as we conclude our summer series on this little Old Testament book of Jonah. It's a most fascinating book. We are in chapter four. There are four chapters in Jonah. Most of you probably know this story quite well. Although I was reminded just yesterday as I was at the gym, I have a young man there that I've been uh, noticing and building a friendship with. He's in his early 20s. And uh, we've developed a good friendship this summer, and I've been trying to reach out to him for Christ. And I was walking around the track with him, and we were talking, and I wanted to tell him about some verses in Proverbs, and I was telling him about Solomon, and I, to tell him about who Solomon was, the wisest man who ever lived, I was trying to tell him about David. I said, you've heard of David and Goliath, right? And he had no idea what I was talking about. And... Um, So it's a reminder that not everybody knows even some of the most familiar stories in our Bible. And Jonah, indeed, is one of the more familiar stories. What a hard-hitting story it is. And today, it's very emotional as Jonah finds himself very, very angry before God. Now, I wanted to just mention that in the weeks ahead, now next Sunday is August 12th, and I wanted to encourage you to be here. That's the Sunday that Pastor Everett and Ann will have the entire service time to share what God has done in their lives and all of their involvements in Nigeria over the course of these last six months. So next Sunday, August 12th, is the Nigeria Report from Pastor and Ann Vakacher. And then the 19th, I'll be back in the pulpit, and I'm going to do two carryover messages from Jonah. They kind of spring out of Jonah, because by the time we're done today with chapter four, you're going to recognize uh, that you cannot read through the book of Jonah and come away without being impacted by the reality that Jonah was a very angry man. And it's been on my heart to just do a message on anger and the man of God, parentheses, and everybody else. And then the 26th of August, you're going to also see in the text today that Jonah hated an identifiable group of people. We call that racism. And on the 26th, we're going to have a message on the man of God and racism, parentheses, and everybody else. Two topics that I think are very relevant today. We live in an angry society, and we live in a a racist-bent society in many ways. And I think God's Word addresses these topics very adequately for us, and I think we'll benefit just thinking about Jonah, this man of God, who was just um, in the brine of anger, and... um, and also then just steeped with animosity towards people and, and a racist, really. Well, you know the story quite well, I think. Chapter 1, God has called Jonah on a mission. He wants him to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrian people. It would be in Mosul, Iraq today. Uh, Jonah is a prophet, a man of God from Israel. The Israelites hate the Assyrians. The Assyrians hate the Israelites It was a big part of Jonah's problem. Jonah decides he doesn't want to obey God, so he jumps on a ship and he tries to sail over 2,000 miles away towards Spain, the absolute opposite direction of Nineveh, in in blatant, in-your-face, spit-in-the-eye-of-God disobedience. 
And so God decides he's not going to let Jonah get away with it. He creates the storm. The sailors are fearful. Jonah knows what's going on. They pitch him overboard. And uh, that's the end of chapter one. Chapter two, he's in the belly of a great fish that God designed in the Mediterranean to come and swallow Jonah. And for three days and three nights, Jonah is in the belly of this great fish. And there he begins to pray. You're going to see today why I believe and why I taught that in chapter 2, when Jonah is praying, he's praying a prayer of thanksgiving. Keep in mind that Jonah probably wrote this book long after it occurred and after he was right with God again. He records his prayer of thankfulness before God for saving his life, but there's no repentance in chapter 2. And in fact, you're going to see the caustic, bitter anger in Jonah today that is indicative to me that he never did get quite right with God. However, he surrendered to God three days, three nights in the belly of the fish. God had him right where he wanted him. Jonah says, okay, the fish spits him up on dry ground and Jonah heads to Nineveh chapter 3. Jonah ends up 500 mile journey, one month to get there. By then, he's uh, got his wits back about him, and he's determined to obey God because he learned a lesson in the belly of the fish that you don't mess around with God and get away with it. And uh, so he's off to Nineveh, he's preaching, and lo and behold, these worthless, horrible, horrific Assyrians repent of their sin. And what a great day that must have been. Let's read about it. It's in chapter 3, verse 10. And when they repent, the people repent, the king repents... Jonah's been preaching, and verse 10 of chapter 3 of Jonah says, And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God had told Jonah to warn them that in 40 days, I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth for your great wickedness, these Assyrians. Jonah gives the message that people repent, and you would think that Jonah would be rejoicing. You would think that the evangelist Jonah preaching for at least three days, maybe more to Nineveh, and having them repent and turn to God would be the greatest day of his life. Let's read chapter four and see how we find Jonah. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Jonah, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant But when dawn came, verse 7, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and he said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, yes. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. 
And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And it's over. What a strange ending. We don't know what Jonah says. We don't know what Jonah does. We don't know his heart. I personally believe, choose to believe, have no evidence, but I believe that because he was a man of God and because the Spirit of God likely worked in him, I believe that it was sometime later in his life, after this incident was long over, that Jonah, with a tender heart, And humility before God and an understanding of the point that God was making wrote and recorded this story for us. And what a powerful and profound illustration it is. Well, if you have your notes nearby, you might want to follow along. But uh, we have really just a two-point outline today. We have Jonah, first of all, in meltdown mode. Jonah is just in meltdown. He is so angry. But thankfully, God is in mercy mode Well, we know the story. We recognize that Jonah has preached. And notice, surprisingly enough, that after Jonah preaches and the people respond, instead of rejoicing in the transformed lives, instead of joining them in their city for feasting and celebration at the stayed hand of God, as he promised, I brought on your notes, Jeremiah 18, 7 through 10, God promised the city that if he told them he was going to destroy them for their sin, and if they repented and turned away from their sin, then he would hold back his hand of wrath and he would spare them of his judgment. He's a mercy showing God, praise God. But Jonah, Jonah's got issues. And so it says at the beginning of verse one of chapter four, that Jonah, it displeased him exceedingly. You need to notice the language there because it's going to stand in contrast later on in the story. But the first thing we see is that Jonah is in meltdown mode and that his anger is is directed at God. First and foremost, his anger is directional and it's at God. Notice what he says. It displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. So he's not just a little bit ticked or sour. He He is in a rage. He is completely upset by this. Exceedingly angry the man of God is. So angry that in verse 2 it says that he prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were gracious. Can you hear this? I knew you were gracious. I knew you would forgive. I knew you were loving. And it makes me so mad. What is that? What is that? Well, it's certainly a distortion of reality. But Jonah completely understood what God would do. And he hated the Assyrians that much. His loathing for that people group was so deep-seated that when God told him to go to Nineveh to preach, he went to Tarshish, not because he was afraid of these wicked people. A lot of times the commentaries will build an argument, and they were. The Assyrians were horrifically wicked. They would pile up the heads of their enemies in great mounds out in the desert as a, remem- as a reminder to people and passing by on the roads that they were there. They skewered people and, and they, they, they just were horrible. They filleted people alive and staked their skin on the wall like some kind of trophy. They were wicked. They were powerful. They were mean. They were horribly wicked. 
And a lot of people think maybe Jonah didn't want to go because he was afraid. It wasn't nearly so much that he was afraid. It was that he knew the character and heart of God. And he hated the Assyrians so much that he knew that if he preached, that God would forgive them if they repented. And so he thought, if I interrupt the message, if I cut the phone line, if the message never gets to them, then maybe they won't hear about God and repent and God won't, will not hold back his wrath. And then God will just blow him off the face of the earth. And that's exactly what he wanted. So his anger is directional. It is, first of all, directed towards God. Secondly, his anger is emotional. You could already feel it in the passage. It's directed towards the Assyrians. Clearly, his anger is deeply seated in his racism. In his, in his reality... Israelis hated Assyrians and Assyrians hated the Jews. It was understandable because they attacked them. They were corrupt and harsh. God had already promised and prophesied through Amos and Hosea that the Assyrians from the north, which the Ninevites were at the capital city, Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrians, that the Assyrians from the north were going to come down and they were going to be God's sword. They were going to be God's instrument of wrath to punish the Israelites for their disobedience to God if they didn't get right. And indeed, history bears out, they did that later, as did the Babylonians from the north. And so they hated them, and so Jonah has this deep-seated, lifelong loathing for Assyrians. And the only thing you can conclude is that, that at any level, he wanted nothing good to happen to the Assyrians. And so it was a very emotional anger and seated in racism. Thirdly, his anger was deeply unspiritual. It was ungodly. In fact, because of this carnality and fleshliness and anger and loathing that he allowed to go unbridled, he prays probably the worst prayer of his life. Look what it says. He says in Verse 2, I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew you were gracious. I knew you were merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting in disaster. Here it is. He's praying to God. See, back up in verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord. He's still praying. Verse 3 now, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Hmm. Jonah is so beside himself over the mercy of God for these pagan sinners. And he's so convinced that they don't deserve it, that he would, he, he would rather die than live with them, right with God. It's incredible. By the way, I, I suspect that in a room this size, in a gathering like this, that Jonah's not the only one who's ever prayed that prayer. Lord, would you just take my life? I, I don't know what drove you to that prayer if you've prayed it. It could be physical pain to the degree that you were so weary of your physical pain, you just said, Lord, would you just take me home? Or maybe you were hurt so deeply, maybe just so emotionally devastated. Lord, would you just take my life? I'd just rather go to heaven. Jonah prays that prayer purely out of anger. If they're going to get to live, I would rather die. That's how deep his hatred was. That's a deep hatred. 
That's a deep hatred. So his anger was directional towards God. His anger was emotional. His anger was unspiritual. He praised the worst prayer of his life to the degree that his anger was absolutely irrational. Often anger is irrational. It doesn't even make sense. So God asks a question. He says in verse 4, and the Lord says, do, do you do well to be angry? Jonah's going to answer that question later on. In verse 8, he says, it's better for me to die than live. That's when he's talking about the plant dying. And then he, in verse 9, God says again, Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Three times in the passage, verse 3, verse 8, and verse 9, Jonah tells God, I'd rather just die. It doesn't even make sense. In fact, to the point that he's so angry when we get to the part about the plant, the object lesson in a minute, that he is so angry that his plant died that he would rather die. He has totally gone bonkers. So there's Jonah in meltdown mode, but God is in mercy mode, and he's still after Jonah. Interesting in this story, he never gives up on Jonah, does he? He gets Jonah where he wants him to be, and I think ultimately Jonah does have a broken heart before the Lord one day. So what does Jonah do? He's, he's stinking mad at God, and he's, he's in prayer yelling at God, and God asks him a question, do you do well to be angry right now? Well, he answers the question later, but he picks up the story with verse 5. And under God in mercy mode, the first thing we see is that he's going to have a conversation with God. Jonah went out of the city and sat down to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. So Jonah goes out of the city, gets away to the east side, and there he makes a booth. He, He takes some brush and some sticks and things, and he makes a wigwam, and he makes a little shelter, and he's going to sit down, and he sits under it that he should see what would become of the city. So here's Jonah's mindset. Jonah is so caustic and so angry and so upset with God that he decides, all right, I don't know for sure what God's going to do. And 40 days isn't up yet. By the way, it was interesting to me to think this week in preparation. It says that he went one day into the city, which was a three-day journey to either get around the city or get through the city. Remember back in chapter uh, three, when he was preaching, it says that the city of Nineveh was such that it took three days essentially to cover it. Bible students don't, don't know exactly what the three days meant. Was it three days walk across, three days around, three days to cover it with speaking? What was it? But actually, if you read it, it doesn't really say that he just preached for three days. It's possible that he preached for three weeks, I guess. But he was one day's journey in, and for at least three days he preached. Maybe he even preached longer. Now, they have repented. God is holding back his wrath. Jonah goes east of the city to sit in in this, he calls it a booth in the ESV, this little shelter, because he's thinking to himself, it is possible that maybe, just maybe, God will change his mind and he will decide to blow him off the face of the earth after all, and I don't want to miss it if that happens. He's thinking in terms of like Sodom and Gomorrah where fire falls from heaven, hailstones, the whole thing, the earth opens up. This is just disastrous. And he's going to wipe out these people off the face of the earth. And he would love, he would absolutely love to see that happen. And he can't risk in the 40-day window, he can't risk leaving. He doesn't go join the Ninevites. He goes off in isolation by himself just in case he gets a chance to see the longing of his heart for God to wipe out the Assyrians. And so there he is, and so then God 
After his conversation with God, by the way, the conversation, uh, his conversation with God was one simple question. Do you do well to be angry? The NIV says, do you have any right to be angry? It continues, though. God continues working on Jonah with an object lesson, letter B, with an object lesson. And this object lesson is totally directed by God. So Jonah's sitting in his booth, then in verse 6, now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now we're supposed to get something as a reader. Remember when we started this chapter in verse 1, reading in verse 1. What, what does it say about Jonah and the Ninevites repenting? Look at verse 1. And it displeased Jonah exceedingly. On the one hand, he is exceedingly displeased about the Ninevites turning their face towards God. And now the reader is supposed to put those two words together. He is exceedingly glad for his own personal comfort. Exceedingly upset that people turn to God. Exceedingly glad that I am comfortable right now. Another thing that people's minds take off on is trying to figure out, okay, what kind of plants can grow in an arid desert that might grow up overnight? By the way, it says later that God reminds him it grew up overnight. Plants can grow at night. Uh, That's pretty interesting, isn't it? I wonder what kind of plant can grow at night and in one night grow up in the desert. And they say, well, there's this certain kind of plant that has big leaves and it grows there. Nonsense. It doesn't matter what kind of fish it was. It doesn't matter what kind of plant it was. They were God's fish, God's plant. Going to see God's worm in a minute. Might be the only ones that ever existed. Might have nothing to do with what's present in the earth. God put it there. God needed it. God used it. God's doing an object lesson. He can pull anything off his shelf and use as an object lesson anytime he wants to. He's God. And so... Uh, This plant grows up overnight, and it says Jonah is exceedingly glad. It saves him from his discomfort to create a shade. So his little booth evidently let the the hot air come through, and even some of the sun was. And with with the plant there, if you're in West Virginia, you would be really happy that you had a big bush that grew up overnight. So he's got this big bush that grew up with big leaves on the bush. And there it is. And, and, and he's so happy. I'm so happy. I, I'm comfortable. And then the object lesson continues. Look what happens. But when dawn came, verse 7, up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. God pulls something else off his shelf for the object lesson. A scorching east wind and... The sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. His skin was drying up on his face. He couldn't hardly swallow. He had cotton mouth. He's about to pass out from the heat and the dry wind and the dust. And here he goes again. And he asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. So there's an object lesson The object lesson continues because we're getting to the point of the object lesson. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Okay, remember that question was just asked. Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the Ninevites that I spared them? Yes, I do well. I deserve to be angry. And he asked the same question. God is setting Jonah up. He said, 
Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah's really ticked off. I just want to die. I lost my boosh. I want to die. He said, yes, yes, God. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Oh man, Jonah is walking into the trap of God's object lesson. And the Lord said, Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night? Should I, here's the final question God asked then, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And I love the final phrase, and much cattle. You're getting this, aren't you? Jonah is more upset about his personal comfort and a little bit of shade on a hot day than he is that God would judge thousands of people off the face of the earth. He's so angry. He is so distorted in his reality right now. Wow, it's unbelievable. And so God asks this question and the, the chapter just ends. Jonah... Jonah, do you see what he's just set up in his object lesson? You you care more about your personal comfort than people dying and going to hell. And we don't know what happens at the ending. We don't know when Jonah picks up his backpack and walks away. We don't know when he goes home. We don't know what he's thinking. I just have to believe that by the time God was done with him and he he packs up and he maybe he laid there waiting to die and he doesn't die and he says, I might as well go home to Mabel. I'm not dying here. He gets his bag and he heads off back to Israel. And with every step, it's going through his mind. Jonah, God's voice comes to him. You care more about your personal comfort than people dying and going to hell. Jonah, you care more about your bush and the shade than you do people dying and going to hell. Jonah, you care more about your personal comfort than people dying and going to hell. Jonah, you care more about your personal comfort than people dying and going to hell. And I think somehow... Jonah's supposed to say, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? I'll tell you what's wrong with Jonah in just a minute, but let's list off a few things. Lessons learned from Jonah as we wrap up and as we prepare our hearts even to end um, very rightly at the Lord's table. You know, you can't study this book. You can't study this final chapter and not come away from the book of Jonah with the reality, number one, that God is in control. So don't ever forget it. Don't ever doubt it, excuse me. Don't ever doubt it. God is in control. What did he do? The storm, the fish, the revival of the pagans, the plant, the worm, the wind. God is absolutely in control. He's most impressive. Young people, you're going to have people. You're going to have people with lots of letters after their name who are highly educated in your biology class at Shepherd University or wherever you end up going who are going to tell you stuff like this can't happen and they're wrong. Don't ever doubt that God is in control. If he wants to swallow a man with a fish, he can swallow a man with a fish. If he wants to grow a plant up overnight, he can grow a plant up overnight. If he wants to have a worm crawl along and bite the plant and kill it in one few hours and shrivel it up, God can do it. Nothing is impossible for God. Don't ever doubt it. Secondly, you have to come away from this study, don't you, saying God loves people. God God just pursues people. Don't ever question it. In fact, parentheses, 
He even loves sinful people. He even loves worthless people. He loves people you don't like very much. In fact, this is the key to understanding Jonah's anger. You see, somehow Jonah figured that God's grace was too valuable to waste on the Ninevites. And somehow he was worthy of God's grace. You know, I I think we can relate to that. Let me just ask you a question. Don't raise your hand, but you tell me if you think you kind of want to raise your hand. If you were asked this question, raise your hand if you think you're worthy of the love and grace of God. Yeah. Yeah. You see, Jonah's problem was that he was no more worthy of the love and the grace and the mercy of God than the Ninevites. But he thought he was. He thought that because he was an Israelite, that somehow he was in a position to to be of greater esteem in the eyes of God. And he's not. And the whole point that God's trying to point out to him, if I want to save the Ninevites, can I save the Ninevites? Of course I can save the Ninevites. If I want to save you, I'll save you. It's like somehow Jonah felt like he, he was worthy of this grace and this love and this mercy. And so he had a distorted understanding of the grace and mercy of God. Now, I recognize that he was an Israelite, and God, God has chosen the Israelites as his special people. We stand with them. It doesn't mean they're more valuable than anybody else. And in fact, this is a picture in the Old Testament that at least was written partly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by Jonah and included in the canon and text of Scripture as an illustration to the Israelites that God is concerned even for Gentiles. The Old Testament is filled with stories of how God cares even for Gentiles. In the New Testament, the Jewish community of the church in the early church in the book of Acts, they struggled when they realized Gentiles were accepting Christ as their Savior. Wait a minute! We're the special ones. Sometimes I think as his church, we think somehow we're more valuable than everybody else around the world. We're valuable. The church is valuable. He says in 1 Peter that he gave his son's precious blood. He gave his precious blood for the church. It's worthy of that. But God cares for the souls of people. Do not misunderstand the grace of God. You are no more worthy of his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness than the Ninevites. In fact, if you're not a Jew here today, you are a Ninevite, you're a Gentile. And you ought to say, you ought to love this story. I really like it that God spares Gentiles too. Isn't that something? Number three, God changes people. The Ninevites changed and they repented and they turned away from their sin. And it was 150 years later before God wiped them off the face of the earth. God changes people. Don't ever stop believing it. I don't know who you're thinking about right now that you think can't change. Because it's easy to get there in your thinking. Some of you might be thinking about your husband or your wife or maybe an adult child. You say, Pastor Van, you don't know my husband. I've lived with him for 43 years and he ain't changed yet. I know. Well, you stop trying to change him and you let God change him because you can't change him. But God still changes people. He changed the Ninevites. He can change anybody on this planet today. And there are, there are bad people that in our minds don't deserve it. 
We are so susceptible to the very mindset of Jonah. I mean, I find myself looking down at people. I was, I was at the counter at McDonald's yesterday and I was getting my 47 cents cup of senior coffee that I waited a long time to qualify for. So I'll drive an hour out of my way to get my cheap coffee. Now, I ran into a guy from church here that I needed to talk to. I was at the counter ready to order. And I ran into this guy. And, well, it was good to see him. We started talking. He needed a phone number. I, I was getting a phone number exchanged. And I didn't realize there's a guy standing behind me. And after a minute, kind of snippy, he's like, are you guys done? You guys going to order? And he was like communicating, dudes, would you just get out of here? And I didn't like the way his tone of voice was. And I decided to me, I didn't like that guy. Can't you see I'm a pastor of this church and I'm dealing with this guy right here? Get out of the way. And I'm telling you the truth. I'm not going to tell you what I thought, but I looked him over and I thought very little of him. I even thought God didn't create him very well. And I was walking out to my truck and I even thought I was pretty sure I could take him. And then it kind of hit me. If that was you, and there was two guys at the counter getting in front of you and your 47-cent cup of coffee, you'd have put an elbow up next to his ear and told him to move over. You wouldn't have liked it any more than he liked it. And you'd have been just as snippy. Are you done? Like, we're girlfriends exchanging phone numbers, and we're important people in the church. You see, we just so easily think down about people, can't we? And you know what's embedded in that is a superiority complex, isn't it? It is, I'm really glad I'm not like that scrawny guy. I'm really glad that guy's not me. I wouldn't be like that. Somehow I'm better. Are you kidding me? And we sin in our arrogance and in our pride and that somehow we're more deserving God changes people. Don't ever stop believing. God uses people. You get that out of this book, don't you? Don't ever forget it. Even flawed people. Even flawed people. The Ninevites were a horrible people. Humanly speaking, humanly speaking, they were unchangeable. They were unlovable. They were unsavable. They were worthy only of the worst kind of disaster falling on their head. And God said, Jonah... I want you to go tell the Ninevites that if they don't repent, I'm going to judge them. He didn't want to do it. God forces his hand through the belly of the fish. He does it. And God relents. I'm really glad that God saves Ninevites. God saves people who don't deserve it. Amen? And so, Father, we thank you for this living illustration in the life of Jonah. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy and your love and your kindness. Lord, would you just convict us and break our hearts and help us realize how proud we are. Thank you for the cross, Lord. We want to run there right now. We want to run to the foot of the cross, Lord, because it's there we understand who we really are. We're dirty, rotten Ninevites who don't deserve the precious blood of Jesus to wash over us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And so as your church today, we want to say in all humility, thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we're trying to understand that we don't, underst- we don't deserve it any more than anyone else. And so grow us, Lord. Encourage us and strengthen us in our walk with you.